0: Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, April 2nd, 2014. Yep, we will be doing our light edition today, and uh, launching into a new mini-series, if you would. It's not a History Channel mini-series, it's a pirate christian radio channel mini mini series (laughs) of epic proportions (laughs) yeah just hearing me say those words sounds so bizarre Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, slow, slow, slow down, stop, open up our Bibles, and actually look at what God's Word says in context to see if what people are saying is actually what the Bible says because there are a lot of deceivers out there. There's a lot of folks out there, some of them well-meaning and some of them just not well-meaning. Some of them trying to make merchandise of us and other people who just don't know better uh, who are passing along false information about God. And if they'd actually do their biblical homework... Uh, they 'd realize that uh, what they 're saying isn't isn 't what god 's word says, and maybe they 'd repent and teach the truth. but uh, the idea here is we don 't want you to be deceived by bad theology, bad doctrine, false gospels, false Jesus, false prophets, you know things like that and so we slow down and open up our Bibles and do that on a daily basis now, part of the program a regular feature here is what we call our light episode. And it doesn't mean that the topic is light or fluffy or, you know, somehow you're going to be receiving a cotton candy episode of Fighting for the Faith. Instead, the idea is, is that I turn the microphone over to somebody who is lecturing on a topic and drilling into it in depth. And so what we're going to be doing starting today is doing a mini-series of uh, of listening to good lectures on the themes out of the book of Genesis. And uh, the lectures were done are delivered by uh, Pastor Jeremy Rody of Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. He always does a fantastic job of doing in-depth biblical teaching and study. And uh, lo- recently, we listened to an entire series he uh, delivered on the Book of First John. So this is not going to be the entire book of Genesis. In fact, I think we're going to be basically hitting major themes like in Genesis three, Genesis twenty-two, and you know several other major kind of milestone passages in the book of Genesis, and today we will begin the series with a look at the themes in Genesis 3. So without any further ado, here's Pastor Jeremy Rody Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, California, and uh, the themes in the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Here we go.
1: So we've been looking at the first three chapters, and in particular we've had an eye out uh, for their implications for worship. That's been the first... Theme in Genesis that we've been looking at, and hopefully you've seen uh, Genesis these first three chapters as we've as we've gone through it over in Agape in a new light, and you've seen some new things that you didn't see uh, there before. In uh, chapter three, of course, you have the fall of man, and we spend a, lo- a long time looking at it from that angle. But if we look at chapter three um, from the perspective of worship. Then we see uh, almost a unit, if you will, uh, between three and four, where in chapter four you have the worship of what two people compared Cain and Abel, Cain and Abel right now what uh, what chapter three shows us um, is if you look at if you look at uh, the serpent and the woman in chapter three. And just start at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say that? They should not eat of any tree. No. So the devil's already got it twisted a little, right? So, uh, take, take note of this, that... It's not that, it's not at least here, um, that the devil is kind of designing his own program or saying his own thing. He's taking what and twisting it? God's Word and twisting it. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is where? That is in the midst, or the middle of the garden. Now, why is it? You've got to picture this, right? Picture Eden, and right smack in the middle is where God puts the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and also the tree of life. Earlier we read that but right smack in the middle. And it is that tree that God attaches His Word to. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, Adam and Eve are right there, apparently, uh, as the serpent is tempting them, they're right next to the tree because Eve reaches out and takes it. So, think about this and conceptualize it in terms of worship and in terms of what we're used to, and you would say in the whole Garden of Eden, where there's anywhere they can go and work and uh, keep the garden, there's one tree right in the middle where God has put his word, where God's word is, that's what we would call church. It's the Church of Eden. It's where God's word is located and where God has attached his word to a sign. This, by the way, is the same way the Lutheran Reformers define church uh, when they're defining it. It's it's that place where the Word of God is rightly preached, and the sacraments, which are word plus sign, are rightly administered. You see, so in, in baptism, is it the water that does these things? No, the water is plain water. It's the Word of God in and with the water. When we take communion is it, the, is it simply the bread and the wine that gives us all these spiritual benefits? No, it's the word of God along with the bread and wine. So God has attached his word to physical elements, water or bread and wine, and we say that's what constitutes the church. Well, it's no different, and you can track this all the way through uh, the New Testament, back through the Old Testament, um, God is always attaching words of promise to a sign or element or thing. Remember the bronze serpent? Yeah, when you look at it, when Israel looks at it, then they will be healed. Now that serpent actually, did the did the bronze actually have some physical property that when they looked at it, it zapped out the snake's poison? No. But God's word was attached to that bronze snake, so that anyone who looked at it with faith that word was powerful to heal them. So through the Old Testament we go, and we can come up with other examples, Naaman, of course, being washed, and, and, uh, and we go back to Genesis where we see in the very beginning God has attached his word of promise to a physical thing, to an element. So Satan attacks Adam and Eve, not in their leisure time, not when they're out working, having a dominion over all that God is given them, um, not when they're being fruitful and multiplying, but where does Satan attack them? In church, right where God's word is. He begins with that word and he begins to twist that word and ultimately he overturns that word. So verse 3, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Well, we don't know where uh, Eve got that, of course. Did she come up with that herself? Did uh, Adam say that last part? Don't, t- don't even touch it. Don't eat it. Don't even touch it. Sounds like something Adam would say to Eve, probably. Um, but uh, if you go back and look at what God actually said, he doesn't add that detail. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So if this is church, Eve has become the world's first female pastor, and she's handing out a sacrament of... Death. Everything's disordered here, isn't it? Yeah. Ah, isn't it? Now you you, you laugh at me, but uh, you know. Um, let's go to Paul and see if you're still laughing. No, <laughs> cheesy. But did you know Paul makes the same argument when it comes to why uh, men should be pastors in the New Testament and not women? Paul doesn't just pull it out of thin air. Paul doesn't, you know, contrary to like the History Channel and and what the feminist liberal scholars want you to think. God doesn't go well, or I mean, Paul doesn't go well. I, you know, I'm a misogynist. I hate women. So let's just uh, put this all out on paper. Let's uh, let's go to first. Um, uh, I think it's First Timothy. Let me see if I can find my note. Let's go to First Timothy two. Oh yeah, yeah, right. I understand. So First Timothy uh, chapter two. Look at the look at the argument that Paul makes. I got to find it, of course. First Timothy chapter two, and then it starts right around uh, verse eleven. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. Is that not exactly what God promises, Eve? Yeah, actually He promises it to the serpent, I guess, more accurately, right? That through the seed of the woman will come the Savior of the world, the one that crushes the serpent's head. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. In other words, Paul's admonition that women ought not teach publicly in the church or exercise authority publicly in the church or, or over a man, um, but rather to remain quiet, to remain a receiver and a recipient, Paul, his proof text is that he goes back to Genesis, the very place where we are, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Adam ought not have listened to Eve. That's Paul's point. And so it is true then when God is setting the world to right, and when He is reordering creation, it is Adam who is to speak to Eve. It is the pastor that is supposed to speak to the church. Now, um... If you flip back to Genesis and just jump ahead, look at um, verse, uh, chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 17. Look at what God says specifically to Adam. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, curse is the ground because of you, etc., so Adam's sin, that he's punished and cursed for, is listening, not to God, but to who? The woman. the woman. Listening to Eve, listening to the voice of your wife, and thereby eating the tree, of the tree. Okay, so when you see, when you look at uh, chapter 3, these verses that we've been looking at, verse 3, um, and following, uh, It is the serpent who deceives the woman, and it is the woman who eats of it and then passes it out to her congregation, which happens to be Adam, and Adam eats it, and in the day you eat of it, you shall both die, and they do. So the first indication of death is uh, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. What here has died? Innocence. Innocence Innocence has died. The the simple harmony with which God has created Adam and Eve to live in harmony, to live in their own skin, to be innocent and free, um, and be exactly as He made them. Now, disharmony, loss of innocence... Shame, all of that is attached to us every bit as much as our own skin. The fall is that intimate to us. It's attached to our own flesh. So that in nakedness we continue to feel shame, we continue to clothe ourselves, we continue to feel the effects of the fall, and that disharmony that God created us as we are to be perfect, and yet, thank goodness, none of you showed up this morning as you are. But all of you chose to uh, don some apparel of some sort. Okay? So, in the context of the church, you see what's happened is the devil has planted himself in the church in Eden. He has caused them to break. He's twisted God's word and caused them to break God's word. He's caused them to, take the, to become disordered in their relationship together, to say, take the sacrament of death. And the effect is that they're naked and they've begun to die. Spiritually they're already dead, dead in their trespasses. But and their body and everything else is following. Yeah, is following. Now in um, verse 7, still in church, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they ran to a nearby grove, and no. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Right there in church, their felt need is what? I need clothing. (laughs) Their felt need is nakedness. So how do they go about addressing their own felt need? Nakedness is the problem. I've got an idea, a solution. I'm going to... Cover it up. I'm going to hide it. Problem solved, right? This is uh, very much a type, a parable, if you will, of everything that is wrong with us when we approach God, and particularly when we approach God in terms of worship. If we come before God in worship, Here I am, God. I'm awesome, I'm faithful, I just want to praise your name. And I'm righteous and you're righteous, this is a good pair. And here we are, let's just let's just have this out. It'll be your glory and my glory and glory, glory everywhere. What's the problem? It's a cover-up. It's figs, fig leaves sewn over the top of a naked sinner, isn't it? Which is why in worship, as we approach God, we come to Him saying, I, a poor, miserable sinner, I, a naked, lousy, ashamed human being, need what? Forgiveness, which is to say, I've tried covering myself up, and it hasn't worked. I need you to cover me up. You see, what Adam and Eve do is the world's first act of self-justification or self-righteousness. The problem is their sin, the problem is their nakedness, and so they work in order to overcome that and appear to be not naked. How do they work? What do they actually do? The verb there used in that verse. They sow. They sew together the fig leaves. They work and try to weave and work a facade to cover their own sins. Well, in the stiff Edenic uh, breeze, fig leaves don't do very well for that, of course. But compare this verse then. Let's skip ahead um, to what God does for them. Look in verse uh, 20 of chapter 3. After God has uh, spoken first to the serpent, then to Eve, then to Adam, we read this. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. See, the fig leaves, what they had done with their hands, how they had tried to cover up their sin, it was insufficient. God had to clothe them. God had to do this for them. And how did God have to clothe them? What was the means? What had to happen first, before he even clothed them? He had to kill an animal. What did that animal have done? Nothing. So it takes an innocent life, the death of something, in order to cover and clothe the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Who does that point us to? Christ. It takes the death of an innocent, the death of Christ, the death of the animal, the Lamb of God, to be uh, slain and to thereby cover over our nakedness and sins. Now Paul says where this happens to is in baptism. Galatians 3.27, do you not know that all of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ? Clothed with Christ. Oh, no, no. Baptism is my act of obedience. Baptism is something I do for God. Baptism is something I uh, I do to show the Christian community that I'm one with them. Baptism is a matter of my fig leaves that I've sown together to try to please God and everyone else. You see how wrong that theology is? Baptism, according to Paul, is being clothed in Christ. It's something only God can do for you. He has to put to death Christ and then clothe you with the skins of Christ. And there's beautiful imagery, of course, uh, in that uh, Jesus is uh, crucified how? Naked. Naked. The crucifix we have, and probably just about every crucifix you've had shows a loincloth or something, wasn't there. The Romans weren't that polite. It's up there for piety's sake. Uh, He was stripped absolutely naked. His garments uh, were... uh, divided up, and went to cover who? Sinners. And his outer garment that was too nice, they didn't want to divide it up, they cast lots for it, so that it would cover a sinner. In fact, one of the very sinners who crucified Jesus. So on Pentecost, Paul goes out and says, Uh, Peter goes out and says, You crucified the Lord of glory. And Paul says, If you have been baptized, you have been clothed in Christ. You see, it's as if each one of us then is personally responsible for the death of Jesus. After all, he bears my sin. He bears your sin. He's not on His cross. He's on my cross. He's on your cross because that's what we deserve. The wrath of God poured out upon Him. The lashes that scar His flesh. The nails and spear that pierce Him. Uh, those all belong to us. That's what we deserve. He takes our place for us there. He is slain for us. And so it is we who have crucified Christ Jesus. It is we uh, who have done this. And what does God do? God uses this evil for good. As they stripped him, God uses this evil for good in order to show exactly what Paul will tell us is happening, that Christ is clothing us in himself.
0: All right, we are going to pause the lecture right there. Pay some bills if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You could do so. My email address is at talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash piratechristian or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at piratechristian. Quick break. When we come back, to balance of today's lectures on the themes from Genesis Chapter 3. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back.
1: God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be
0: taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
1: Marty Python's Flying Circus
2: Church
3: Welcome to build god how can I help you?
2: Hi, I've got this build god certificate from a fellow co-worker, and I came to check it out.
3: Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited.
2: Well... Uh, what exactly are we doing here?
3: Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity.
2: I don't feel comfortable doing this.
3: Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your God is male, female, or unisex.
2: Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. and It also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male.
3: You? Okay. Next, we have to define the attributes of your God, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate.
2: Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful, all at the same time.
3: Okay, then. Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it.
2: It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross.
3: Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays?
2: Don't think so. God destroyed Solomon Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. C-
3: could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Hello? Can you get me the mall security? Thank you. <laughs> Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. Yes, he's a closed-minded Bible believer. Yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you.
0: Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Back. Warning: listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor doesn't give you this kind of in-depth biblical teaching. Just a reminder: Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring fighting for the faith to into the world and you can partner with us that's right it's a partnership you visit our website fightingforthefaith.com right there on the home page in the middle of the page you'll see it several places splashed around there um, we have two friendly yellow buttons one says donate the other says join our crew when you join our crew you're signing up to automatically contribute every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio, and it is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's lecture on the themes from Genesis chapter 3. Here again is Pastor Jeremy
1: Rohde. So Mary had a little lamb, that's true, whose fleece was white as snow. That's true. And that fleece was shorn from the lamb, right? Um, Doesn't Isaiah say something about that? 53... As the Lamb before his shearers is silent, so also was the Son of Man. So he is the Lamb of God who is slain and sheared that he might clothe sinners. And again, Paul doesn't just say, well, this is abstract. Paul says, this happens to you in baptism. Baptism. Okay. So all the way back in Genesis, we see a picture as God, uh, as their, as their own fig leaves that they have sown together, their own works are insufficient, and it takes God doing for them, God clothing them. So also he does this very thing for us as the heart and center of Christian worship, of divine service, of God serving us. Does that make sense? Take questions or comments on that? Um, in, in the verse that says, uh, in the day of it, y- you eat of it, you shall die, uh, they hadn't experienced death. So how would they know what that means until after uh, they had sinned and saw this death of an animal? Adam and Eve, uh, we have this perspective of them, and I don't know where it comes from, other than we think of them the way we would think of like newborn babes or something. Like they were terribly naive and didn't get it and didn't understand what death was, so that which if you if you probe that and if you really think about it, then it makes God the speaker of nonsense, right, because then God is saying uh in the day you eat it, you eat of it, you shall certainly you shall surely quark, and they're like quark mm, okay, uh, mm, well, maybe we'll do it, maybe we won't um you see uh the church for um centuries upon centuries, certainly up to Luther's day, viewed Adam and Eve as far more intelligent than we. They knew precisely what death was. That in fact, they knew the deeper understanding of death uh, than we commonly think of as death. So that in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And they ate, and after all this judgment, they go, guess we didn't die. right?" That's what we would say with our shallow understanding of death. Because we think of death only as the body laying in the casket. But you see, death is much more profound than that. You are dead, or you were dead, in your trespasses and sins, Paul says. You see, to to be unreconciled with God, to not have faith and trust in Him, is to be dead. In the deepest, profoundest sense. Well, my heart's beating and my and my body moves around and my lungs are inhaling and I, that's not life. That's not life. You are living in a state of death. So Adam and Eve, uh, according to the early church fathers and Luther, knew exactly what God had in mind when He said, "In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die." And in fact, they knew more profoundly than we what that uh, what that meant. That it meant first and foremost. Uh, the essence of what death is, being separated from God who is life and having that breach there, and that the consequences of that, um, they may not have fully understood uh, in terms of the consequences upon creation or upon childbearing or upon man's labor. But God lays those curses upon man and upon the world. But even so, I think it's safer for us to uh, believe that Adam and Eve knew exactly what death meant when God said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Yes?
2: How do you speak to um, the woman who isn't married or has not, who's been barren? When these verses make perfect sense, how does how does God clothe her?
1: I'm, I'm not understanding the question, I don't think. Well,
2: I can see the headship of Adam, and I certainly see the headship of the church mm-hmm. in a male hierarchy. I, I absolutely see that. But what about the woman who isn't married or the woman who has not had children?
1: Paul, Paul views her headship as, as directly to Christ. And that's, that's really how the early church and much of the church still views it today. I mean, ultimately, we're all, mar- we're all married to Christ as members of the church and as the bride and he the bridegroom and, and that's it. And, uh, our, our marriages here on earth, um, last how long? Until death do you part, right? Until death do us part. Um, so they're, they're, uh, they're a temporary, they're an inferior, they're a lesser, although, very much important, and God made them, and it's God who puts two into one flesh, etc. I want to take nothing away from it, but I want to say that that is the earthly marriage. The heavenly marriage runs deeper. And that heavenly marriage is given to all of us, but is, is maybe uh, most emphasized by those who lack the earthly marital relationship. Yeah. Yes? Um, just to follow up on that last point, the, the thing about, that Paul said about childbearing... Uh-huh. Um, is he saying that the women are saved by bearing their own children, or is he saying they're saved through the process of childbearing because the seed of the woman crushed the the serpent's head? You got it. Um, the the she there is uh, is singular. I mean, that doesn't really. Let's look at it. I don't believe he says and and they. Yeah, verse fifteen. He does not say, and yet they will be saved through childbearing. He says, yet she will be saved through childbearing. And who's that? Who's that she? Eve will be saved through childbearing, because that's exactly what God said. Through her seed uh, will the serpent's head be crushed. Okay. Then you have the plural. If they, who's that? The Christian women, continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Yeah, so Paul is pointing women to uh, Mary uh, and uh, through Mary to Eve and to the promises God made there, the fulfillment of that promise in Mary. Um, and it's true not only for women that they're saved through this childbearing of hers uh, and the subsequent generations that lead to Mary, um, but the whole world is saved through that. And Luther has, has a wonderful way of putting this. Um, if you look at chapter 3, verse... 15 of Genesis. God is speaking to the serpent who is the devil. Um, Revelation makes that very clear. That the devil is the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. And that's plural, right? Offspring and offspring. Offspring. Then look next. He, singular, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's the first gospel in the scriptures. Um, When Lutherans talk about the gospel being in the Old Testament and where's the first place the gospel shows up in the Old Testament, we're very specific. It's here in this verse. Okay? And um, the point of that being, Luther's point, that uh, with that curse upon the serpent upon the devil he makes the devil fearful of all women because women are the loaded gun now the womb is the loaded gun you know from the from the woman is going to come the seed that crushes his head he lives in perpetual fear of every pregnant woman this could be it this could be it that could be the one and so God makes uh, the devil who was who showed himself to be more powerful and more cunning than the woman. With this right here, God turns the tables on him, doesn't he? Now the woman is your lord and master, and you are fearful of her, because she will give birth to the one to crush your head. So God puts Satan in perpetual fear of all perpetually pregnant women, or just a woman who's pregnant. So that's a that's a great thing, isn't it? You know, and I think I think the parallel is Eve. Then in verse twenty, the parallel thought is this: with uh, the the First Timothy we've been looking at, the man called his wife Eve. Why? Mother of all the living. Now let's work with the assumption that Adam is not dumber than we are, but Adam is smarter than we are. He isn't saying that Eve is a mother of, well, yeah, I guess you're going to beget someone, and they're going to beget someone, and oh, what do you know? You're the mother of all the living. Let's pretend for a moment like Adam is a theologian. And the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. He should call Eve the mother of all the dead. But for God's promise to who? Eve, in her earshot, as she hears that it is her offspring that will crush the serpent's head, undo his rule, undo his reign, undo all of that, she becomes the mother of who? The living. living. And as the mother of the man called his wife Eve because she is the mother of all the living, how do you go from sin that causes death? It is what then that gives life? Faith, faith in the promise, for the just shall live by faith. And this is eternal life, to know the Father and the one whom he sent, Jesus Christ. You see, so faith is, what, is how God makes us alive. When he gives you faith, he makes you alive. You were dead in your trespasses, but now he has made you alive, Right? So Eve, he calls the mother of all the living because of the seed that will come from her and crush the serpent's head because she is the mother of all the faithful who will believe in this very promise and through their belief live. Now, if you take that and compare that to uh, what we looked at in 1 Timothy, um, then uh, they, if they continue on in, Faith. They conquer. You see, so they look to the one woman through whom the seed will come, and the rest of woman, uh, women look to her, look to that seed in faith, and thereby they also live. So Eve is the mother of all the living. Okay, I saw a hand.
0: Um, I was just recalling how Satan would be in fear of all the women who would become pregnant, especially those from Abraham. You know, he attacks Sarah, Rebecca, you know, yes. all of the women and just and, and cast doubt on their ability to produce this. Messiah, and when is this, and when, and how's how this going to come? And is it going to come through me? And is this really going to happen? And so you can see how Satan lives in fear and tries to get Abraham to deny that Sarah's his wife. And you know, when they go into Egypt, and not only does he do it, Isaac does the same thing. So, you know, the dog returns to its vomit, yes. a fool to its folly.
1: Yes, and you've just pointed out the deeper narrative of the Old Testament that Satan is always trying to stop that Christ child from coming, from the seed of the woman. So all this business about, uh, well, you, God doesn't want them to intermarry with pagan people, right? Mm-hmm. Or the sons of God to intermarry with the daughters of the earth. And he strictly commands Israel not to marry uh, the pagan. And of course, this was the downfall of Solomon, Right When his wives led him into uh, idolatry at the end of his life, why does Satan want to do that? Why does God forbid it? Oh, because it's naughty, Pastor. No, it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. He wants to pervert and stop that line if he can't. He wants to foul it up, the very ones that God has promised to it, uh, promised, you know, very specifically Abraham, David, etc. He wants to foul that up. And that's the very thing he tries to do uh, with David and Bathsheba, for example, as well. Yeah, that's the deeper narrative. The whole Old Testament is really the story of one family who begets and begets and begets up until Matthew chapter 1 when you have Mary who is overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and conceives the Christ. The whole Old Testament is the story of one family and the story of how the devil uses the rest of humanity and idolatry and anything at his command to try to destroy that family, to try to destroy that line, and he can't. And it comes to be. Yes?
3: And then after he was born, then Herod went out to kill all the babies. He's yeah, exactly. born... To try to kill all
1: the babies, exactly, exactly right. yes. and so so you see that Christ uh, is threatened there and then throughout the whole of his ministry, he's constantly threatened with death. Um, and then finally, with his death, uh, we have to understand also, though this that in the uh, as Jesus is dying on the cross, remember what he's what he's taught the people, um, he says, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life and no one can take it from me. Well, did they take it from him on the cross? See, now that changes the way you view the cross. Because Jesus is, according to his own word, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down freely of my own accord. Who's in charge when Jesus is hanging from the cross? He is. is. When he uh, gives up his spirit and with a great voice uh, uh, cries out to heaven and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Um, Do you remember what the centurion says at the end? Surely this man is the Son of God. Why on earth would the centurion say that in that very second? Because he's seen a lot of men die on a lot of crosses. And men who die on crosses die of blood loss. They die of suffocation. They die of slowly, slowly draining down and that's it. And they leave this life not with a bang but a whimper. Not Jesus. In his dying moment, Jesus roars up to heaven. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he, bowed, and he gave up his spirit, gave up, active, and bowed his head. No one takes my life from me. I give it freely of my own accord. You see, when we die, it's passive. It's something that happens to us that we can't stop. No one can kill Jesus. He can't die passively. He has to die actively. Uh, He has to lay down his life actively. He has to give it up. It has to be an act that he does. We're sinners. So by virtue of sin, the wages of sin is death. Death has free reign to come and take us. We can't do anything about it. Not Jesus. He has no sin. So death has no claim on him. So in order to die, he has to actually lay down and die. Give up his spirit. Bow his head. So uh, Jesus shows his command over death, and, um, and that even in the throes of death, he is quite fully in charge. He knows quite fully what he's doing. And there's a sense in which, I think as you read the Gospels, you realize that Satan and the demonic and evil powers get it. They're kind of like, oh no, this is the Lamb of God and they've laid on Him the sins of the world because how are all the temptations for Jesus on the cross? They're all temptations to do what? Come down. Save yourself. Get off the cross. Don't do this. It's like there's been a gigantic satanic about-face. Who is this Jesus? I don't know. Tempt him. See if that works. Get him to sin. Okay. Meet him in the garden, he's or in the desert, he's starving. Uh tempt him, tempt him. Okay. That doesn't work. Threaten him. Have the religious authorities try to push him off a cliff after his first sermon. Um, you know, try to stone him, try to beat him. Um all these things, right? And then suddenly on, it, on he's on the cross and it's like there's terror struck in the heart of hell and they're like, "Oh my gosh, get him off the cross." Come down, come down. If you're the Son of God, come down. We'll believe in you if you come down. Save yourself. Then we'll believe, right? Oh, we'll do, we'll do anything. Just come down. You see, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly of my own accord. And that too is why Jesus then in the Garden of Gethsemane isn't praying, Boy, boy, God, I sure wish you'd take this cross away from me. He's already said, told the disciples not less than three times, The Son of Man has come to lay down his life. And three days later, he will take it up again. And remember when Peter says, Oh, no, not you, Lord. He says, Get behind me, Satan. So Jesus in the garden isn't saying, Take the cross away from me. Otherwise, he'd say, What to himself? Get behind me, Satan. It's not what he means. He knows where he's going. He's praying that God will resurrect him from the dead, that God will raise him up, and that's the very thing he does, and that's the very thing the apostles make such a big deal about, that he is raised for our justification, that the proof that his atonement is complete and the satisfaction for all of our sins is that God raised him from the dead. If he wasn't the Messiah, if his sacrifice wasn't sufficient, then God would not have raised him. The argument from the early, from the early church, from the apostles, that since he has been raised from the dead, therefore we can be certain of the forgiveness of our sins, of justification with God. Okay, did I see another hand? Thought I saw one. Maybe it was an itch. Okay. Um, so uh, so look. In Genesis, then, we see so much that has to do with, with Christ and, uh, what he will come to do and then what he will do for, uh, his church. Eve is the mother of all the living. Um, Eve, uh, so Eve is the mother of all the living. Who, what could we also say is also the mother of all the living? The church. The church is the mother of all the living, right? Now think about this, um, because the early church fathers sure did. Eve was pulled from where? Adam's side, right? Now, God put Adam to sleep and then pulled from his side Eve, who is to be the mother of all the living, who we would call the church. Now think about this. Romans 5 teaches us that Jesus is who? The second Adam. God puts him to sleep on the cross, and from his side he takes the church, the mother of all the living, the new Eve. How from his side? When the soldier pierces his side with the spear, what comes out? Water and blood. blood. John, the only disciple who is there witnessing this, says, The water, the blood, and the Spirit, these three testify as one. What on earth is he talking about? In baptism, you become a member of the church, a member of Christ's body. You are flesh of His flesh and blood of His blood. In communion, where you drink the blood... You become a member of His body. You are flesh of His flesh and blood of His blood. You are made into the new Eve, the new church, that when God put the second Adam to sleep, He fashioned from His side, from His rib, a new Eve, a new mother of the living, of which we all have part. Pretty cool? Way
2: cool.
1: Way cool. The early church, you know, and here we, I don't know, gosh, what are we doing? The early church fathers knew all this. They preached it for centuries. And, I, and we're like, how do we read the scriptures? I mean, we Twitter over grammar and this, that, and the other thing and get nowhere. And they're sitting here revealing to us the deeper mysteries of the first Adam and the second Adam, the first Eve and the church and all the blessings that God bestows on us in baptism and in his supper. We're thoroughly out of time. Um, for those who will continue with me next week, we're going to flow into Cain and Abel. And we're going to leave Cain and Abel uh, fairly quick um, because chapter 5 already gets us into the story of Noah. And Noah, if we believe the apostles, if we believe Peter, then the story of the ark is all about baptism. Baptism. And the early church fathers were, were, were students of Peter and got it. So we'll do, we'll do Cain and Abel, and then we'll get into the flood and baptism next week.
0: So what did you think?